0: This is Motley full Answers, I'm Alison Southwick, and I'm joined by Robert Brokamp and Diana. Welcome actually, back. I actually wrote in here, she's back in black, and I was going to do like this ACDC yes. thing,
1: yeah.
2: and you are Ba-na-na. I did not disappoint. Ba-na-na. Okay.
0: So today we're doing yet another mailbag. I like to call them extravaganzas, where we answer your questions. And there's a lot to tackle, including the bottom line on your emergency fund, how to keep from putting your eggs in one basket, and how to find if someone dearly departed has left you any money. Yay! All this and more on this week's episode of Molly Fool Answers. So here's something interesting we read this week. It turns out that now more than ever, it's cheaper to eat at home than eat out. According to Bloomberg, who looked at the consumer price index, the cost of eating at home has remained stable while eating out rose 3% in May over the last year.
2: Whoa, well, I've seen that. I've seen that on menus menus for sure. I mean, every time they're like new menu, it,
1: it's that's code for new prices. <laughs> <laughs> more expensive. I've noticed that too. Especially when you got as a family of 5 and you You get the bill, it's quite shocking.
0: So, uh, not only is it more expensive to eat out, but we're also eating out more as Americans. So, for the first time ever in March of this year, Americans spent more on eating out than groceries. Does that surprise you guys?
1: That is a bit shocking. Yeah. Um, Eating out is a well known economic indicator, and things are going well, especially for the higher stratus of the economy. So, yeah, I can see that. but still that's quite surprising so it's, a, it's
2: also a lazy meter thing for people like me although I can make a chipotle burrito last for four meals there you go it takes it takes a lot of discipline it takes two months and it's kind of gross it's lesson. the size of a small dog okay. so not that I'm way. gonna eat a small dog for four meals. Yeah, how would you because would yeah no I, th- no a small dog lasts six meals. <laughs>
0: So On a macro level, I should be happy to see these numbers, because it means that the economy is looking good.
1: Yes. I'm I'm going to suspect that it is what is known as a lagging indicator, in that it doesn't give you any prediction about where things are going, it's how things have been recently, but it's still a good sign.
0: But, for my pocketbook, it's a bad sign. Not so good. So, Diana, what should I do about eating out responsibly? (laughs)
2: besides don't do it um, or only do it it's not gonna occasions. happen no, we're, no, gonna no. Eat out. we're gonna eat out and uh, here it's it's good to know. restaurants have some tricks up their sleeves in terms of the menu in terms of pricing and even design and this is really down to a science so when you when you look at a menu or when you're reading a magazine our eyes drift to the upper right hand corner and in that corner that's where you're gonna see the items that are the highest margin uh, meals for them. So they make the most money out of the food up there. They also, you'll notice on a lot of menus, they're not using dollar signs. They're trying to get you to divorce. Like, it's just the number. It's just the we'll number. Just like 15. Yeah. So they're trying to get you to divorce the a whole idea of here's how much money I'm going to shell over. Oh, it's just 12. And they'll also embed it right after the description that includes a lot of adjectives. Um, delicious, delicious <laughs> adjectives. Yes. Yeah. Um, Using photos, one study found that a photo increases sales of that item by 30%. Wow. Makes your mouth water. And also, one of the things you'll see is that they'll put um, really expensive items on there and maybe even put them
1: first so that everything else below that looks Right, looks cheaper. Yeah, salespeople so, will do that too. They'll show you the most expensive car or stereo or something like that, knowing that the next thing they show you will be more likely the one that you buy. Yeah,
2: so it's all of those sort of sales tax- tactics that we've seen in retail. Or another thing, have you ever noticed when 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 the waitstaff is explaining this, describing the specials, they never tell you the price.
0: They never tell you the price. And you
2: don't want to be that gauche person that asks asks what the price is. That's so interesting. Be huh. that gauche person. The
1: ask, ask for the and price. also, if
2: you're going to go out to eat, if you shop around, you know chicken's cheap. You know pasta's cheap. You can make that stuff on your own. Go out, get something special. There's the treat lazy yourself. factor. Yeah.
1: <laughs> There's the lazy factor, right? A lot of times you go out to eat because you know you have nothing at home or you came to work and you don't have anything. Um, so it's smart shopping at the grocery store. There are more services that will deliver things. We've talked about Amazon before. I just learned about this thing called Instacart, it's like the Uber of shopping. So you order it, they'll deliver it, and it's basically people who want to make money who do the shopping and do the delivering in their own car. It's not everywhere yet. Um, uh, but if that's the, the deal, if that's why you're eating out a lot just and you don't have time, just have it delivered to your house.
0: Um, Alright, so some tips and tricks to help you save money when you're eating out. But at the end of the day, Diana says,
1: treat yourself! So. <laughs> to, to, <laughs> so, to a dog! No.
2: <laughs>
0: So in today's practical advice, we have some help from a listener. A few episodes back, Diana answered another listener's question about splitting the check when you're a fun-loving, teetotaling vegan. Uh, so Miha wrote in to let us know about an app called Plates. It allows you to break out the costs associated with the bill, split it up overall, adjust perspe- tip percentage, split the taxes, etc. And it's up to it'll uh, work for up to ten checks. So the handy. app again is That's called. Handy. Plates. All right, cool. Thanks, Mihai. Have you guys stumbled upon any cool apps lately?
2: Um, I heard of a similar one. It's called Dash, as in Dine in Dash. And uh, it's not, it's actually connected to the restaurant. So restaurants have to sign up to use this system. And it's in New York, Chicago, Atlanta, DC, and on a bunch of college campuses. And it does essentially the same thing. You say, pull from within your contacts list. Here's who I'm dining out with. The menu is actually on there. Uh, When the waiter puts your order in, those items pop up, and you put a, you know, hit plus. That's what I ordered. Your companions will also put plus if you're sharing that That item. Sounds cool. Yeah, divides it up, and you can. You actually don't have to wait for the check to pay the bill. That's Um, nice. You you can do it through your front.
1: You really, yeah. So,
0: all right. It's called Dash. Dash. All right, Robert. How about you?
1: Well, picking up on last week's theme of being healthy also will make you wealthy, uh, I use the Lose It app, which you start by putting in your goal, like a target weight over a certain amount of time. It says, okay, you should have just this number of calories each day. And you enter in the foods, and it has the calories, not only just like eggs and apple, but Panera's Greek salad yeah. or 12 ounces of Coke it tracks it. But then also, if you do any exercise, it'll give you an idea of, how many calories you would burn doing that exercise and then it adjusts your limit. So if you do more exercise, you can eat more during the day. So the other day, I was comparing two lunches. One was going to result in 300 more calories. I also knew that the day before I had spent 20 minutes on an elliptical trainer and that only cost that only burned 225 calories. So I'm like, I did not Spend 20 minutes huffing and puffing on an elliptical, <laughs> so I could have this other lunch. So I think it does lead to better decisions.
0: All right, what was the app called again?
1: Lose it. Lose it. I was mm-hmm. thinking, I was. I was hoping that was
2: like lose someone's phone number.
1: I lost my keys. <laughs> Find my keys. Okay. No, I do that all my own. I don't yeah. need an app for that.
0: Wait, oh yes, wait a minute, Mr. Wait. All right, kiddos, it's time to dig into the mailbag. The pretend mailbag, Russell, Russell, ruffle, Russell, Russell, all right. The first one comes to us from Annabelle. Uh, Annabelle says, "I hear a lot of different things depending on the economical situation when it comes to an emergency fund. So full time, part time, salary, and freelance. In my case, me and my wife are freelance slash part time with three kids. So emergency Ooh. fund, what do you do? Uh,
2: okay, so." The rule here, basically the less steady your paycheck, the more people who depend on that your income to survive, the larger your emergency fund should be. So we've all heard that rule of thumb, the have three to six months for your emergency fund. Well, what does that mean? It's three to six months that of worth of money that would cover your expenses. We're not talking about your whole paycheck. So these are the must pays. You've got to pay rent or mortgage, you've got to pay for diapers, I'm assuming here, you've got to pay for food, uh, your car payment, so those things that you need to cover every single month. After that, three to six months to, to customize that, you have to look at your overall situation and see, are you in a field where you could find a job quickly, say if yours went away? Do you work in an industry where it's in high demand, or you highly specialize and it's going to take you longer. Can you freelance or work as a contractor? And in this instance, these folks are already doing it. F- yeah, doing it. Um, are there others in your household that can bring home the bacon when you're not? Put able those kids to, to work. Exactly. This is what child actors are for. <laughs> and this is why we tolerate them. Um, and how easy is it to access other money? So maybe it's a home equity line of credit, or do you have other savings? Right. Like if you've been stocking away money for the kids' college, could you access that? So look at that, adjust that three to six months. Um, in this instance, they are the poster children for needing a hefty emergency fund, yeah. especially with irregular paychecks and dependents. And so six to work. nine months? Yeah, I would say. I
1: would say that's to play play it safe. safe, Yeah, all all things being equal. I mean, Mm -hmm. if they have a lot of money elsewhere, may may not need it as much. Yeah. yeah.
0: All right. Next question. Are we ready? This comes to us from Jeff, and Jeff has a question that he was a little bit embarrassed to ask. So, Robert, let's make him feel a little better. Jeff wants to know, is a 4% dividend yield the same as a 4% return on your investment? If so, why doesn't everyone just load up on dividend-paying stocks? And if not, why not?
1: So, dividend is the cash that a company pays their shareholders. It's a way of returning profits to them. Um, a company has a decision: they can pay out that cash, or they can keep it and reinvest in the business—a a new factory, some sort of new uh, initiative, something like that. So there is a debate about about which one is better. But as we discussed in a couple of episodes ago, history shows that dividend payers actually outperform non-dividend payers, generally speaking. Um, the reason people go with dividends is that they're more reliable and they're actually um, they adjust according to inflation, and in fact, they actually beat inflation over the long term. So you'll see really people who are retired focusing on dividends. If you're younger, you're more likely maybe to invest in like the facebooks of the world and these companies that are up and comers, and they don't pay dividends because they want to keep that money to build their business.
0: So then, to answer his question, is a four percent dividend yield the same as a four percent return on your investment? No,
1: the dividend is just one part of the return. You would it's. The dividend is the money you get, but then how much the stock grows or doesn't grow. So you'd put them both together to get the total return.
0: Perfect. See Jeff? That wasn't so no, bad. No, not at all. Don't feel it. There's no dumb, no dumb questions. All right, Diana, the next one's coming to you. This comes from Mark. So, you hear all the time from professionals and non professionals that you should save X percent, usually 10 percent. But what exactly does that mean? Does, this, does the 10% include retirement savings or is that considered separate? Is there savings or emergency fund or something else altogether?
2: Yeah, totally vague, right? Um, and a big thing missing from the you'll be okay if you save 10% of your paycheck over your lifetime is that, okay, you'll have a decent retirement. If you start in your early twenties, save ten percent of your earnings every single year until you turn age sixty-five. Great, right? Save ten percent of your income, but that doesn't—that's not how most of us save. We have other th- things we need to save for, and expenses like saving for a down payment on a home or buying a car. All of that savings needs to go on top of the ten percent. Um, so, a, it's a good rule. When you're starting out, save ten percent. It also gets you into the habit of saving. But if you are over the age of twenty-five, let's say um, you're in your uh, in your thirties, in order to have a sustainable retirement, the same kind of thing. If you had started when you were twenty or twenty-five, you're going to need to save about twenty percent of your income. And again, we're here. Here we're just talking about retirement. And if you don't start until your age forty, we're talking about or yeah, in your forties, we're talking about. 43% of your earnings that you're wow. going to need. Yeah. Yeah. And it's that's important. a hefty savings right. rate. <laughs> right.
1: It's important to remember that you 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 would calculate that by the amount you put into your 401k or whatever, but also your employer. So if you put in 10%, your employer matches 5%, then that's a total of 15%. Also, those studies indicate that they're for people who want to retire at 65. The bottom line is the average retirement age is going to creep up more and more because of. Too many people have not saved enough, but it's not the worst thing in the world because longevity is also going up. So, you know, if you have to wait till you're 70, 75, that's not such a horrible thing, in my opinion. And
2: another thing, while while saving 25% might sound completely undoable to you, just think about it this way Um, you're going to be making money every every year. Put raises, put any bonuses you have that will up your savings percentage. Increase contributions to your four hundred one k. That's another way to do it, which it, could have tax benefits,
1: so you lower your tax.
2: Absolutely, volume. and if you're in a two income household, let's say, tr- let's say you can live off of one person's income. Now you've got a household savings rate of fifty percent. So, over time, you're you're going to have to adjust, but just and, just save more
0: and don't include your emergency fund.
2: No. No. Okay.
1: No.
0: All right. Our next question comes to us from Walter, and I learned something from Walter's question because uh, he has a question about insurance on brokerage accounts. I didn't even realize there was insurance on brokerage accounts through the SIPC. Uh, so he wants to know, Walter wants to know, if I buy X number of shares of a company, didn't I own it? So, for example, if I own X shares of a variety of companies that's worth approximately one million, and the brokerage firm goes under, wouldn't I still own all those shares? So, first off, SIPC. It this is, is news to me. It is the
1: Securities Investor Protection Corporation, created by a federal law, but it's not a federal agency.
0: So, is it kind of like the FDIC?
1: No, that's totally different because that's just about cash and that has more federal backing. SIPC is its own corporation and it has no abilities to investigate fraud or anything. The important thing to know, though, is that it has a limit $500,000, which includes $250,000 in cash, and it only insures against fraud. So it doesn't insure against uh, if your stock goes down or if your broker is dishonest or gives bad advice. But if you buy stocks, you do own those stocks. Those are yours. If for some reason the firm has absconded with it or something like that, that is what SIPC is for. And because the limit is, can be relatively low compared to what some people have cumula- uh, accumulated, Most brokerages have additional insurance on top of the SIPC.
0: Does this kick in very often? I don't imagine this like brokerage firms go bust, like are fraudulent often.
1: No, there could be an argument for having like firm diversification. I believe, certainly believe that an advisor diversification. You should be getting advice from more than one person. But if you're going with you know the vanguards and fidelities of the world, I don't think you have anything to worry about. Unless, unless you see your your broker leaving the office with a huge suitcase.
2: <laughs> <laughs> and a straw hat yeah. and see ya. You might want to make a couple phone calls.
0: <laughs> yeah. Alright, our next question comes to us from Justin. Justin is 27 years old and he's looking to roll over his 401 k plan over to Vanguard and invest in some index funds. He has roughly $15,000 to invest and he's very enticed by the performance and roster of the Vanguard Total Stock Market Index Fund the VTSAX index. However, he's concerned that the minimum buy in is ten K, which is most of what he's got in this four oh one K. And so he's worried that it would be putting too many of his eggs in one basket.
2: Nope. He's good. All right, you're good, Justin? (laughs) So (laughs) as the name of the fund implies, the Vanguard Total Stock Market Index Fund. uh, this is a this is a fund that tracks a benchmark index. In this case, the overall stock market. So, large it consists of large cap stocks, mid cap, small cap, micro cap across a broad range of industries. And these are companies that trade on the New York Stock Exchange and the Nasdaq. Um, altogether, they approximate the return of the overall index. So, when it says, when you hear the stock market, you know has gone up two percent your this fund should act pretty much in line with that type of
1: return theoretically so the market like yeah, you, you get theoretically more diversified theoretically you own a piece of every publicly traded company in the United States and that is important to realize that this is the US stock market if you want to yeah. diversify globally there are Vanguard, yeah. there's like Vanguard International Stock Index Fund
2: mm-hmm. So there are other index funds that track this very same thing, and I looked at this particular one, um, and it's attractive because the annual expense ratio is 0.05%. That's extremely low. That is extremely low, and compare that to the 1.05% average for the overall fund ca- category that this sits in. So it's cheap. It's just it's as diversified as you can get. So your eggs are are. Along with a in a bunch of stuff, you've got a ton of eggs here <laughs> spread out everywhere. That is one giant omelet right. investment. Um, the minimum of investment requirement, which he says is ten thousand dollars, he can make it, and he's still got five thousand dollars that he can um, do something else with. That's great. Uh, and again, because of that diversification, he'll be able to sleep at night.
0: Next question comes to us from Stephanie. So, Stephanie is writing on behalf of her father in law. He had a close friend who passed away, and the only living family this person had was an estranged sister. And of course, this person also had no will. And they think that their father in law was left some money, was designated a beneficiary on some type of retirement accounts. How do they find out if they were left any money?
1: That is very difficult um, because you can't call up. Fidelity or in Schwab and say, hey, um, this person passed away. Did they leave me this money? Um, you can't, if you know the firm, you can call up and say, what's the process by which the beneficiary forms are validated, goes through the legal process of, of making sure everyone gets what they want. And the firm might appreciate knowing, like, okay, this person's looking into it. But you really can't dig into the personal details. Of course, if you are the beneficiary, no one else legally can get it. It's just a matter of that firm finding you and making sure you get the money. But it's not going to go to this estranged sister because she's not on on the form. And this is an important thing to know about investment accounts and life insurance policies. And that is the the designated beneficiary is the first person who's going to get that money. Often, even if the will says something separate. So you know you're married, you have a life insurance policy, and then you get divorced and remarry. You got to make sure you change the beneficiary. You have more kids, something like that. You want to make sure you add the other kids so that that person's not resentful if the other kids get the account. So, beneficiary form mistakes
2: are how ex-spouses get their revenge,
1: (laughs) 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 and kids and and kids that have been eaten out of the will. And and the uh, other piece of advice, obviously, is let people know that they're going to get something.
0: Yeah, because in this case, they kind of. It sounds like they kind of heard it through the grapevine, but no one can like get in there and like. Tinker with the guy's money, right? Like it's locked away, and Merrill Lynch or whoever is controlling it, they'll they'll find whoever they need to find. Right. All right. So there you go. Just sit around Just and wait, wait for wait by the phone. Wait <laughs> for them to call. Unfortunately. <laughs> To close with they're not letters from listeners, they're not questions where they are kind words because I like to just roll around in, <laughs> in the kind words that people say about us because it makes me feel good. And so I wanted to share some closing words uh, from Hulk J. He left this review, he or she left this review on Stitcher. The show will literally put money in your pocket if you pay attention and follow the tips. Also, literally, I will follow you around and I will put money in your pockets. You guys, probably, listeners, probably didn't know this, yeah. but I stalk you and I, I put money in yeah. your pockets. When you, you know you're that dollar looking. you found? That was from us. Was you're us. welcome. <laughs> so, uh, sorry to continue. I have already started saving money on my month, month, month budget and feel like I am making financial decisions based on what I want and what suits me best. Before Motley Fool Answers, this was not the case. Robert is the man,
1: <laughs> and Diana
2: and Allison are the, are the ladies. Winning. Yeah. <laughs>
1: But that's That was implied. Yeah. Yes. yes. That's great. That's just- Isn't that great. Thank you. Yeah. Hulk,
0: Hulk Jay, it's great to hear that like making really good decisions all in a row. Yeah. That's awesome. All right, the next one comes from V-Ish. And V-Ish writes on iTunes, I'm amazed by how much simpler some of this stuff seems once these guys explain it. Since I started listening to the podcast, I've set up an emergency fund to set aside six months' worth of expenses, renegotiated my phone plan, and I am now starting to look into IRAs. Thanks for all your help." Wow.
2: Awesome. Look at that. that, that is makes, yeah. Vish made day. a
0: checklist and just started scratching stuff That's off. Great. Good job. So Those two two recent reviews, which warmed my heart, yeah. and now Robert and Deanna's. I can see it in your faces. I'm going to frame those. So, yes, and here's where I again plug and ask and beg and plead for you guys to listeners, you guys, listeners, not you, Robert and Diana, okay. to head to iTunes or Stitcher and leave a review and rate us. Uh, we really appreciate the kind words that you say. And obviously, we read them every night <laughs> as tears roll down our cheeks. All right, the show is edited sweetly by Rick Engdahl with theme music composed and performed by Diana Yoakum. Our email is answers at fool.com kind of exhausted this was a big mailbag episode yeah
2: we covered a lot of ground you might want to listen to this episode in (laughs) halftime
0: if you can stand us for robert brokamp and dayana yokum i'm allison southwick fool on